0: So I want you to think about your church for a minute. And I want you to think about your church, whether it's this church, you know, Philida, or whether you're from out of town or checking, you know, looking for a church, but, or you've got a church family somewhere else. I want you to think about your church. And let's just, for the sake of argument, say that your church isn't perfect. Okay. <laughs> Because it isn't, because there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if we ever found a perfect church, they wouldn't let us join because we'd ruin it. So <laughs> think, about, think about your imperfect church, and I want you to ask yourself this question, but please do not answer out loud, okay? <laughs> the question is, what's one thing that would really improve your church? What's one thing that would really improve your church? Now, based on the kinds of things people usually say about things that dissatisfy them with their church, your answer might be something like more music, less music, different music, Better preaching can't be that. Um, <laughs> better small groups, more in depth teaching, better programs for children, better programs for youth, better programs for men, better programs for women, better facilities, and so on. Okay, I'm guessing your answer might be a, you know one of those. Now, think about this question what would Jesus say, would really improve your church? Because you know what? Actually, it is his church. It really is. What would Jesus say would really improve your church? How we answer that? Well, one way we can get at it is by looking at what Jesus prayed about. For his church. The night before he died for our sins, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could become a part of his people, become part of his church, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for all of the people who would make up all of his churches all around the world. He prayed that God the Father would protect us from the evil one. He prayed that one day we would see his glory, the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was created. And he also prayed for something else. And I want you to look at it with me. Look at John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. There's a note sheet in your folder you can haul out. If you haven't yet, take some notes. But John 17, 20 through 23. Take a look at what the Son of God said would make his church the way he wants it to be. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only. And there he's talking about his first disciples, his first followers, the people who made up the very first church. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now he's praying for us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. What does Jesus say he wants in his church? It's really interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say anything about music. It doesn't say anything about programs. Not a word about property. Not a word about facilities. Not a word about many of the things that really, you know, interest us. When Jesus thought about what he wanted for us before he went to his death, the thing he prayed for was oneness. Unity. Unity. And it's not that those other things that that they don't matter. It's just that unity really matters to Jesus. And I think if we're honest, we'll have to admit that that just sounds weird to us. Because I think many of us would say we're not really all that sure what unity is. And we don't really get why it's a big deal. Because... We are Americans. And here in the Northwest, man, we're, we're living out here on the frontier that was settled by people who wanted to get away from everybody else. And we value independence. And we value privacy. And we value being able to do our own thing. Unity. Oneness. That just sounds stifling. It sounds kind of uh, conforming. It's kind of weird. I'm going to guess, just, I'll just take a guess here, that when you get up in the morning and uh, you think about, you know, the day ahead or, you know, the week to come, and you think about all the different priorities you have, all the different things you want to accomplish, i just bet that being unified with other believers in Jesus and experiencing oneness within your church may not be up near the top of your list. But I'll tell you this, it is up at the top of Jesus' list for you and for me. Not only that, Jesus not only prayed about this, God's Word tells us repeatedly, not just once, not just twice, many times, that if we are a follower of Jesus, we are to be unified with other followers of Jesus. Consider just a few other verses. Just run through these quickly. Ephesians 4.3 Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans 15.5 May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. First Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. You see it? You a big deal to God. It's a big deal. Why is that? Why is unity important to Jesus? That's the question I want to spend some time thinking through with you. Why is unity important to Jesus? Why do we need unity to be the church he wants us to be? Now, here's one reason. Because it takes unity for us to do our job. It takes unity for us to do our job fulfill our mission, accomplish our purpose, however you want to say it. We are His church. He's given us a job to do. And it takes unity for us to do our job. So I want to think about that. You know, why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? What is our mission? Okay, so if you take out the worship folder that you've got here and flip it over on the back, you see this statement, and it says, our purpose is to connect people to the God who made them, to friends who helped them, and to a world that needs them. Now, those are the words we use here at Philida. Other ch- churches might use other words, but if they're a church that's interested in fulfilling God's mission for them, then it's going to sound or it's going to have those same ideas because this comes straight out of God's Word. Okay. Another way you could put it is we're here to help people come to know Jesus Christ and become his followers and everything that that involves. It's another way you could say it. And unity, authentic, genuine unity, empowers us to do that. With unity, we can accomplish our mission, and without unity, we cannot we can't do it say so why is that well let me let me explain this with an illustration okay you probably know it's football season some of you are fans some of you aren't doesn't matter um, whether you're a fan or not you know that football is a team sport it's not like golf where you know win or lose it's all up to you one player no in football each player's out there with 10 other guys, and they've all got different roles. So the center hikes the ball. The quarterback quarterback takes the ball, and depending on the play, usually he'll either hand it off to a running back or he'll throw it downfield to a receiver, and then the running back or the receiver tries to take the football down the field, and all the other players are blocking out the defenders so that their guy with the ball can get down the field. And then when your team's on defense, you have you know, a whole different set of guys out there. I hope this explanation's been helpful to all of you <laughs> who don't understand the game. <laughs> Is that what they're trying to do? So, different players with different roles, different abilities, different sizes even. Have you seen the difference between a running back and like a, you know, guy on the front line? Yeah. So very different. But all of these different players are united by one purpose. Win the game. And here's the thing. In order to do that, they've got to play together. They have to, when they huddle up and the play is called, they've got to all put aside their personal preferences. They can't say, oh, what, the coach called a running play? I don't think so. <laughs> well, you guys do the running play. I'm going to kick a field goal. And this guy's going to, you can't do that. They've all got to put aside their personal preferences, their rugged individualism, and they have to decide for the sake of winning the game, we've got to be unified. We've got to play as one. That's oneness. That's unity. Here's your definition. Many things coming together as one thing. Several things, anything more than one, coming together and working as one thing. Okay? Unity. It's like an orchestra. In an orchestra, you have many different instruments. You know, everything from a tuba to a piccolo. And everything in between. String instruments, wind instruments, you know, percussion. All of these different instruments, they've all got their own sound, but when each one plays its part of the same music as conducted by one conductor, every part harmonizes with the other. Many things coming together as one thing. And see, there's power in this. A unified orchestra has the power to play beautiful music. A disunified orchestra does not. You ever heard like a, you know, first time out middle school band play? They haven't got that unity thing down yet. Unified orchestra has the power to make beautiful music. A unified football team has the power to win the game. A disunified football team does not. Or we just, you know, honored our veterans. Those, you guys that are veterans, you've been in the military, you know When guys are out and they've got an objective, they've got a task, they've got to work together. They've got to be unified. If they each do their own thing, they're not going to achieve it. But here's where the comparison breaks down. The power of unity in a football team or a squadron or an orchestra is merely human power. But the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for for his people for his church is not merely human power that's why Jesus didn't just tell us to be unified he prayed for us to be unified it takes the power of God to unify us to get us to stop pursuing our individual agendas and to love his agenda and embrace his agenda and fulfill it we need a unity that only God's power can produce and I think you'll see that more clearly as we look at another reason why we need unity not only to do our job this is actually a part of that job but it takes unity for us to display God to display God look what Jesus prays for in verse 21 He prays that they, his people, his church, his followers, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. This is just so amazing. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, this tells me that God uses genuine, spirit-empowered unity of his people to make himself known, to reveal the truth about himself and about him sending Jesus into this world. That's what a church, that's what a, a genuine group of believers in Jesus, united together by the Spirit of God, that's what they have the potential to do when they are genuinely unified, God uses them to make Himself known. There is something about a group of authentic, Christ loving, God saturated people who put aside their individualism, who put aside their personal. Preferences, their different backgrounds, their different cultural distinctions, racial distinctions, their personal agendas. They put that aside and as one, they together pursue Jesus Christ and his agenda of radical love. There is something about that that is unmistakably godlike. There is something about people who together love Jesus more than they love anything else that makes God known. Now, how does that work? I mean, how do unified believers in Jesus display the truth about God in a way that disunified believers cannot? I'm not sure I can fully answer that question, though take a stab at a couple things. First of all, think about the, the truth that the Bible teaches that God is one. Okay? Deuteronomy 6.4, central key verse in, uh, in the Torah, the truth that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. But, He's a unified one not an absolute one. What does that mean? Okay, I want you to imagine a block of steel. Okay, a block of steel. That is one thing, but it's, not, it, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute one. You wouldn't use the word unity to describe it. Okay, now in contrast, imagine a machine made out of steel, like a car motor. And now you've got many different parts made out of steel, but they all are connected together in perfect design, perfect harmony to make a powerful engine. Now, a car motor is one thing, but it's a unified one. Many things coming together as one thing. And the Bible teaches that God is a unity. He's one, but he's a unified one. And one of the pictures we're given of this in Scripture is that of marriage. The same word for one is used there when it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. The other illustration we have of this in Scripture is that of the church. Many diverse, different believers coming together and being one. These are pictures of the oneness of God, or they're supposed to be. God is one, but he's a unity. He is three persons, three personalities eternally existing in one being. You say, wow, that's really hard to understand. I know. That's because God is much greater than our minds, But Scripture teaches it over and over again. Here's just one verse. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not names, but name. One name, one God, three persons. Or think about this. Here's another way to think about it. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. Have you heard that? God is love. Okay, what would that mean if God were an absolute one? Because in order to love, you need someone to love. And if God were an absolute one, that would mean there was no love until God created us. And yet Jesus says in this same prayer in John 17, 24, he says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. God has always been love because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally loved one another. And see, we have to get this because this is a huge reason why unity matters so much. Okay, because God intends for unity among Christians to be a visual picture of what He is like. Look at 1 John 4.12. This verse excites me and scares me all at the same time. No one has ever seen God because he's invisible, he's spirit. But if we, we Christians, the church, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Do you realize what this is saying? Do you know, where where do you go to see God today? Where can you go and see God? What this is saying is, people should be able to catch a glimpse of God in His people if they are unified in genuine, Spirit-empowered love. God uses our unity to display Himself, to put Himself on display, to make Himself known. That's why it matters. Now, we've got to remember this. When someone in the church You know, that pastor or, you know, somebody in the church is just bugging me, irritating me. Yeah, I guess it didn't work to say the pastor's bugging me. But, you know, we get upset, we get irritated, we get our feelings hurt, we get mad. What's at stake here? Why does unity matter? Why should I care about unity? I'm upset, I'm irritated, I'm hurt, I'm frustrated. Well, yeah, it's true that unity makes church a lot more pleasant. It's a lot more pleasant to be unified than to be divided. And it's also more efficient. But those aren't the main reasons why unity matters. Unity matters because God matters. Unity matters because God matters. It's ultimately about God and making Him known. So how do we experience this? How do we experience this? How do we experience God empowering us to fulfill our mission and to make himself known to us, to our guests, to our community, to our neighbors? How do we experience this? Don't you want that? I want that. I really want that. I want to experience what Jesus prayed for in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Perfectly one. A unity that overcomes any division, any argument, any barrier, any problem. A unity that is deeper and stronger and more loving and more forgiving and more God revealing. How do we get there? Well, it takes effort to experience unity. It takes effort. Going back to Ephesians 4 3, we saw it earlier, but let me just point it out again. Notice what it says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. It doesn't say make every effort when you feel like it. It doesn't say make some effort. It doesn't say make occasional effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. That means unity doesn't just happen. In fact, it says unity has to be kept. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It has to be kept. It has to be preserved. It has to be guarded. Well, from what? What's it need to be protected and guarded and kept from? Well, from us, for one thing, and our sin nature. By nature, we're all a bunch of independent sinners. Sorry if that ruins your day, but it's the truth. You know how the Bible describes us? Sheep. Sheep who wander off and go their own way. By nature, that's what we are. We're not, by nature, all that interested in unity. That takes a work of God's Spirit to plant within us basically a foreign desire that wasn't there before and to create a thirst and a hunger for that and a love for one another that overcomes the natural tendencies that we've got. So that's one threat to unity, but there's another one. We have an enemy who hates God. You know why Satan hates you so much? It's not because you really aren't all that important to him. The reason he hates you is because he hates God. And you bear his image, and he doesn't want you to know him, and he doesn't want other people to know God. He doesn't want you to love God. He doesn't want you to honor God. So he is actively looking for opportunities to do what he can to undermine unity in the church, because unity reveals God. See, when people see Christians with, I mean, real differences... Real personality differences that can be just annoying, frustrating. People with cultural differences, people with, you know, generational differences, different tastes, different desires, different preferences. And when people see Christians actually put that junk aside and come together and act as one for the glory of Jesus, that authenticates his message. It authenticates the gospel, it validates that Jesus is real so Satan just attacks unity anyway anytime he can look at Ephesians four twenty-five. look what it tells us therefore each of you must put off falsehood put away lying speak truthfully to his neighbor for we are all members of one body there's unity in your anger do not sin do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold This is a call to ongoing vigilance to resist our natural impulses and not give the devil an opportunity to destroy unity. Don't be a dupe. You've got to stay vigilant. Well, what can we do? Well, I'm going to mention just a few things and we're going to pick it up again next week, Lord willing. First, and this is really key. Remind yourself frequently. <laughs> I'm doing this because this is what I do. <laughs> Remind yourself frequently what's really at stake. What's really at stake. See, particularly when something happens that hurts your feelings or makes you mad, it's at those times we need to remember what's really at stake. That there's a lot more at, at stake here than just me and the person I'm having a conflict with. What's at stake here is the unity of the church and accomplishing the mission God's given us and making Jesus known to the world. That's what's at stake. What happens if Christians handle their conflicts exactly like everybody else? What happens If the way Christians handle their conflicts looks exactly like the way everybody who doesn't profess to be a Christian doesn't know Jesus, doesn't care about Jesus. If the way we handle conflicts is the same, what happens? You know what happens? Our message loses all credibility. It loses all credibility. If we act like our grievances are more important than Jesus and the mission he has given us, If we act like our grievances, however valid they are, that those grievances are more important than saying to the world, yes, Jesus is real and His forgiveness is real and His power is real. If we're more concerned with our rights than with His glory, we lose. We lose. Now, please don't hear that and say, because I can just... Imagine somebody saying this. Oh, okay, so when I have a conflict, I'm just supposed to ignore it. And I'm just supposed to pretend that it's not real. No, no, no. No, that's handling conflict the way the world handles conflict. At least one of the ways the world handles conflict. No. Scripture tells us to deal with conflict in love, in humility, in kindness, but definitely to deal with it. Okay, not ignore it. Because there's something really big at stake. So that's the first thing. Remind ourselves frequently what's at stake. Second, pray. Jesus did. He prayed for unity. Why? Because unity, true unity, not just some fake getting along, but a true unity depends on the power of God. You know, the unity of the Spirit. So true unity depends on the power of God. And the way we experience the power of God is by depending on God in prayer. So pray for it. Pray, ask God to create unity and to protect unity and to deepen unity and help us deal with our conflicts in ways that honor and glorify him. It's one of the most important things we can pray for. And I can guarantee God wants to answer that prayer, yes. You want to pray about something that God is going to say yes to? Pray for that because it matters to him. And then third, keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. You know, you just can't get a group of people to agree on everything. It's not going to happen. We're going to disagree. We're going to have different opinions about things. We have different backgrounds. We belong to different generations. We have different culture things. We've all got different ideas, different perspectives on how things should be done. And all of that is okay. And it's fine if... What unites us is more important to us than our differences. I guarantee you, what unites us is more important to God than our differences. And if what unites us is more important to us than our differences, then keep the main thing the main thing. Our differences are real, but they're not nearly as important as the main thing. Say, well, what's the main thing? Let me show you. Okay, right now I want everybody to think of your favorite worship song or hymn. Just the song that if we sing that on Sunday morning, man, we've had church, okay? And if you can't think of your absolute favorite, just think of one of your favorites, okay? Think of it, think of the title. If you can't think of the title, think of the first couple words, whatever. Everybody got one? Okay, now on the count of three, I want everybody to say their favorite worship song or hymn out loud. Just say the title of it on the count of three, out loud, all together. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. That's what I thought. Now, now at the count of three, I want you to say the name of the one who died for us, The one who gave his life that we might be one with him and with each other forever. The one who shed his blood for us. The one who rules as king of kings and lord of lords. The head of the church. The one we serve. The one who matters more to us than anything else matters. At the count of three, say his name. One, two, three. Jesus. Jesus. That's unity. That's the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sang it earlier. You are beautiful. And God, that you would choose to put your beauty on display somehow through us. Lord, I confess, I often look ugly and in the way that I can think, in the way that I can treat people, and, and uh, Lord, we just, we need your help to display the beauty of who you are. And Lord, we need to remember how important unity matters because you You want us to display your beauty and your glory and the reality of who you are and how you change lives and you turn people from independent self-seeking, self-absorbed, self-driven people who just insist on our own preferences and our own agendas. And you change us from that into people who still have differences, but we see something that matters so much more. And you give us a love for your glory and a love for your purpose and a love for doing your will. Lord, only you can do that. So we pray you'd continue to do that. Lord, I love this church. I love these people. And I have felt and experienced and seen unity again and again. But Lord, we need more. We need you to unify us. We need you to unite us and display your beauty through us. Thank you for the good news. The good news that Jesus died that we might be one with you and know your glory forever. Lord, this side we're looking as in a mirror dimly. We don't see that glory fully displayed. We will, but Lord, can we glimpse it more and more as you display your goodness in us? God, help us remember what's at stake. Help us be vigilant and accomplish your great work through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.